RadioInfluence.com. Hey, gang, this week's episode of The Real Animals Podcast, again, brought to you by our good friends at Contender Boats. I'm going to get a chance to spend some time with my good friend, Captain Dave Marquette, 49 years uh, in the guide business here on the west coast of Florida. Absolutely a incredible amount of knowledge. Really super excited to have Dave. Hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I'm looking forward to bringing it to you. Joining me on today's Real Animals podcast, which is presented by Contender Boats. Uh, You wanted him, you requested him, and I don't blame you. One of my very favorite people uh, in the fishing business. As a matter of fact, probably one of the guys who I owe a great deal of my guide business success to, because when I first got in the business, uh, Captain Dave Marquette, who is our guest today, he kind of took me under his wing a little bit and showed me some of the do's and some of the don'ts and kind of kept me in line, which uh, is part of the reason we call him Daddy Dave. Joining us today here, again, the Real Animals Podcast, Captain Dave Marquette. How are you, my friend? I couldn't be better, Mike. Um, I'm honored that your guests would think me worthy of this, and I appreciate you inviting me on well, I think I think it's all you, buddy. Um, you know, your reputation, I know uh, I kind of wanted to jump into early here uh, in this in this podcast into, um, I don't off the top of my head know that many people that have been doing it any longer than you have. How many years have you been guiding on the West Coast of Florida, Dave? Well, Can under you- under Coast Guard license, uh, 49. Good God, son. And to still yep. be doing it at such a high level, Dave, is such a, I mean, it, it's so impressive. I, I, every day, obviously, our boats sit right next to one another at the marina. We run a lot of our trips, most of our trips out of the same, same waters. It, it, every time I see your boat, I often think to myself, I just can't believe how many years you've been doing this and how many things you have seen on Tampa Bay over the years, how much change you have seen. W- what are some of the biggest things, Dave, that jump out to you when you go back over a 49-year celebrated career as one of the best on the west coast of Florida. What, what, what jumps out to you as some of the things that have changed in our fishery? Well, Mike, those are mighty kind words. And, and uh, you know, I, all I can say is it's what I do. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a big part of who I am, but it's what I do. And I still have to work every trip I can run to pay the TECO bill and to pay my my house rent and, right, and sure. everything else. I mean, I, I will assure you that unless you're Mike Anderson or Greg DeVault or somebody like that, there is no comfortable retirement from the guide business. You, uh, you, you know, you get to work in God's uh, beautiful office creation. I get to see most of the sunrises and more sunsets than I, <laughs> than I would like to, but, uh, you know, it, it's just an, an incredible office. Uh, you've got to, you've got to, I mean, what drives me is that I am still able uh, on occasion to uh, help somebody catch a fish that they probably would never otherwise catch if it weren't for helping them along, guiding them along. And, um, you know, I, I don't, uh, People don't pay me to watch me fish. I very I occasionally will pick up a rod, but most of the time, the only time I've got a rod in my hand is getting a 
a wind knot out or or making a cast for somebody that may not be able to stretch your bait quite far enough or something along that line. Right, right. I'm, I'm, not, like big, I'm not big on fishing either. Yeah, I'm not big on yeah. fishing on my uh, on my charters either. I often get, sometimes if I get two anglers, they're like, hey, go ahead and fish. I'm like, yeah, no, that's not why I'm here. It's not what we do. Well, that's probably something else I learned from you. As far as changes, there have been some really good changes and some that have not been so good. I will say that uh, those of us who operate around Tampa Bay have been really blessed beyond description with a um, with a with an organization that has been dedicated for many years to improving the habitat in Tampa Bay, and that is Tampa Bay Watch. Um, I was around when the concept of Tampa Bay Watch uh, was first voiced. I was around when Peter Clark was chosen to be their initial uh, executive director. I've been privileged to watch so many of that organization's uh, positive contributions to the habitat of Tampa Bay and to educating our young people about how critically important estuary habitat is. And, uh, you know, Peter, Peter is kind of a quiet guy, but, you know, he's done a lot to enrich our our, uh, our Tampa Bay habitats, both seagrass and oyster seeding to, to return some of the old oyster beds back to productivity. And oysters are the, the best filter uh, our water can have. So if there's bad stuff in our water, the more live oysters we can put out there, the better our water will end up being. Yeah, I'm a big fan of what uh, Tampa Bay Watch does, uh, obviously, as well as CCA, and I know Coastal Conservation Association works hand-in-hand with Tampa Bay Watch on several events and on issues, and, and that's really good to see. I like seeing those quality organizations, conservation, estuary organizations, you know, working together uh, for the good of our fishery. Uh, you know, I've seen, I've, I'm actually kind of blown away because uh, July of this year was 19 years for me in the guide business, and I think seeing the difference in the fishery from when I started to now um, is a little mind-blowing. And that's why, you know, I do so much preaching and griping and hollering and trying to get people on board on the conservation side and get people to to pay attention to the way the population has exploded here in West Central Florida and how many anglers we have using the resource and, you know, how important it is for us to take care of these resources. Um, it, it just, it's mind blowing to me that we don't get more support. Well, you, you know, so I was dwelling on the positives when you asked that question just a moment ago. Um, and, and you know, there, every, every sword has two cutting edges as a front edge and a back edge. And the back edge of what you just said is that when I first started guiding, there was not one boat in 200 or 250 that had a freshwater circulating live well in it. There was not one angler in 400 or 500 that was out on the bay that could throw a cast net. There was, you know, the, 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 the seek, I, I call it the secrets pool, was very small. There were not many fish in, in, the, in the pool that, that held the majority of the secrets. But through all manner of social media and seminars and boat shows and expositions and all, the general public, the level of skill 
with the general public as it pertains to inshore and nearshore fishing is light years ahead of what it was four decades ago, three decades ago, two decades ago, one decade ago. And so, you you know, you and I see it particularly, and I've I've seen the conversation here recently uh, in in the abundance of of live-scale sardines. Um, For for years and years and decades and decades, you didn't have to go to a bait hole. You could go out on the grass flats in the summer and drop an anchor overboard and mix up a little chum, cozy kitten fish dinner, and stone ground whole wheat bread and scatter it out in front of your boat. And before you knew it, down tide, here came uh, enough sardines that you could throw the cast net to and at the most three times and you could fish all day. And now you know um, that the greatest single challenge of being a successful fishing guide these days is being able to catch the right kind of bait, the right size bait, so that you know you can you can supply your clients with the live baits that are the most successful to catch all of our local species. With. Right. So the pressure on the bait is is not good, um, and and it, while you know you brought you brought uh, you brought up a great point of being frustrated about why more people don't really just embrace the fact that the thrill is in catching the fish and not in throwing it in a cooler. Um, you know, I, I, I just, I don't see how the remaining habitat in our estuaries, and it doesn't matter whether it's Charlotte Harbor or Tampa Bay or Sarasota Bay or St. Joseph Sound or, or, uh, wherever uh, the, the, the habitat just simply is not large enough to be a nursery for enough fish so that everybody that goes fishing can take home a, a, an igloo cooler full of fillets. Right. It, 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 we just do not have that reproductive capacity. Um, so, you know, whether people like it or not, uh, we are headed inshore and nearshore towards more enjoy the experience of catching the fish and less, hey, I'm going to feed my whole neighborhood with what we catch today. Right. Well, and I, I'm personally, I'm okay with that. And I think you are spot on um, because I, I just, again, and, and you've been doing this much longer than I have um, at a much higher level than almost anyone I know has. And I just don't see it. I don't see it. I'm on the water a lot and I just don't see the, the, the fish population being strong enough to, to keep up with all that we have going on on our waters today. I just, I just don't see it. Um, and then, and no, it's, not it's not possible, Mike. And I then we're still, then we're still growing. I mean, we're not, you know, that's the part that people, you know, seem to forget. We're still growing and then we still have our, our natural or man-made disasters, whatever you want to call them, you know, the freeze of 2010, the, the red tide we had last year. I mean, you have all these hiccups to boot that we're battling. I, I just don't, I just don't understand why we don't have more support on that conservation effort side to, you know, there's so much grumbling over the catch and release of snook redfish and trout right now. It absolutely blows my mind. Um, and again, I'm not, you know, there's so much great to talk about our fisheries. So I'm not, it, it is, it, you know, it, it, it is, it's a very positive thing for me as, you know, I, I'm often, I'm often referred to as that grouchy old captain down the dock, but 
you know, what you're saying, I have been preaching for a very long time. And, you know, you're, you're a generation um, removed from me. Um, I, I wish I saw more of the, you know, the, the current, the current generation of young guides uh, really embracing the conservation ethic and really educating themselves so that they can they can converse intelligently when you have people that ask intelligent questions about why you're doing something. Right. And and uh, you know the the level of commitment not not it's not just guides. Okay, I mean. The, the, there, there are people who are in the guide business for all manner of reasons. The, in my opinion, the largest gross number of people who are in the guide business are in it to pay for a boat that they could not otherwise afford. They, it is a part-time if, uh, activity for them. They do not pay their family's bills out of the back of a boat. They pay for a boat that they could not otherwise afford. And so they, they're, their true loyalty is to the, the, their real job. Right. If you understand what I'm saying. Sure. sure. Um, you know, there are things that we can do in Florida that are simple things that would make an enormous difference in the number of fish, uh, available for everybody to catch the, the most simple thing in my opinion, there are two things require the use of circle hooks. If you fish in Florida, you use a circle hook. And take cormorants off the pr- protected species list and allow cormorants to be treated as the pests they are. And it, it, if we were to do those two things, I believe that there would be a noticeable improvement in how many fish everybody catches. It's not really important how many fish the professionals catch because we've got a lifetime of, of learning the tiny little differences that, 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 today, particularly today, that dictate whether you catch a quality fish or you don't. But for the average person with an average skill set, buddy, they're challenged a lot of times to catch anything they want to talk about. And if we just made folks fish with a circle hook and we treated cormorants like the pests they are, then our, our fish loss, just the unnecessary death of juvenile food fish and sport fish would be cut exponentially. What do you suppose, Dave, what do you suppose the number of circle hook users actually is? And, and I, I don't know. I'm just trying to be curious. I'm a circle hook guy. I've been a circle hook guy now for many years. And, and part of it was, was listening to you preach to us uh, years ago. Um, and it took me a while to make that change over. Um, but once I did and I start to saw the, you know, I can see the, the effects, the, the, the number of fish we catch, hooked in the corner of the mouth and not gut hooked is, is crazy. Um, so I'm, I'm totally down. I'm, I'm a circle hook guy. I get it. Um, but how many people do you think are actually, cause if you go to the stores, if you spend some time in the tackle stores, there is a large assortment of circle hooks on all the store shelves. Does that mean we're getting better with that? Do you think, or is it just something that we just needed to be better than it is? Here's how I will respond to that. First off, uh, there is almost universal agreement that the federal government is exceptionally tilted away from recreational angler success in the management of their offshore species, that it is heavily favored towards uh, 
towards the industry take. But the federal government, one of the very first things they did in the Gulf of Mexico, if you drop a bait with a weight on it, it's got to have a circle. There is no allowed use of J-hooks for any bottom fish in the Gulf of Mexico. And so I went back when the state was considering what to do about the red tide kill. Um, senior state administrators came to me and asked me for my ideas. And further, they asked me to consult with industry leaders about what would be what would could potentially be effective measures that would not crush business. And I reached out to several of the largest wholesalers in the United States and and actually sat down with them and had meetings and listened to what they had to say and and ask a few questions. That was one of the questions I asked. They told me that they needed from 12 to 18 months to eliminate existing inventory and then the increase in sales by replacing J-hooks with circle hooks would offset any other negative impact. So one of my suggestions to our state regulators was since it's going to probably take four years anyhow to take a juvenile trout, redfish, or snook from the juvenile state to the reproductive state, the closure is probably going to be a four- or five-year closure because until we, until we replenish the brood stock, right. it's not juvenile fish. It's right. a brood stock. Sure. Uh, we, we, are, we are deep in the woods until our brood stock is replaced, and particularly so on redfish. Um, but there's no, there's no requirement that a shift in Florida from J-hooks to circle hooks be immediate. They could make that rule and say, effective January 1, 2001, Florida joins many of the the fisheries in saying the best thing for our fishery is to use circle hooks. So give people a chance to educate themselves, give people a chance to go through their existing inventory and their tackle boxes, and then make the change. Right. That, that to me makes more sense than saying, hey, you got, you know, every J hook you got mm-hmm. in your tackle box today is, uh, is illegal. Well, you know what's uh, irritating, irritating about that whole conversation? Obviously, I'm on board. I, I, I'm, I'm, it's a no brainer to me. I don't. I, I get it. I have got it for several years now. It makes all sense in the world. And I know that the the law offshore is that you are supposed to be using circle hooks. But as I understand right. it, it's not enforced. Uh, the only thing I can tell you is the FWC law enforcement is the contracted um, is the contracted law enforcement leg of the National Marine Fishery Service. And I can tell you for absolute certain that it is enforced with, with some of those law enforcement officers. Now, I, I, I can't speak for all of them because right. I'm not out there on, on, on client intercepts. Well, and I'm only, going, uh, I'm only going based off of what I've heard from charter captains that are in the offshore side of it. Is okay, that, so, I'm only hearing that from so, the offshore guys. So, that, you know, hey, we've been pulled over so, and nobody even asked to look at them. They're not even checking them. I would hate to know that there's a professional charter captain that is knowingly breaking the law. Well, that's a whole nother, <laughs> we could do a whole nother thinking, podcast. You know, if, if we are the professionals that set the example for professional behavior, it, it would, it, 
it would make me very unhappy to know that people are just arbitrarily defying the law. That's defying the law as opposed to uh, breaking the law. Right. A lot of times law is broken. You don't know you're breaking it or you, you should know and don't know. But when you defy the law, that's like, you know, then you're then then you ought to get caught and right. you ought to pay the price for defiance. Yeah, there's no doubt. And, and, no doubt. The only thing, only thing I can't answer for a guy who knows what the law is, is a professional in business and makes a decision that he is he or she is going to break that law. Well, I, just, I mean, I know you know that it happens more than it should, but I, I cannot justify it, nor can I, you know, I, I just, I don't know what to say about I it. I just wish, I, I, for example, I wish, they, for I wish they would. I wish that the law enforcement would take that part of it more serious if indeed what I'm being told is correct and, and that they're not paying a whole lot of attention to it. So anyway, you and I are on board there. I think circle hooks is the way to go. As far as the national scene, I still believe, and, and I don't, you know, we, we, can, <laughs> we can go down this road. It would be great to do with you because I know how you feel about it. Um, but I, I truly believe that the reason that the recreational angler doesn't have uh, much stake in this game is because we're not organized, is because there's less than 300,000 members of CCA in the entire country when there should be 300,000 members in Hillsborough County alone um, with the number of people that fish in this county. Pinellas County is almost completely surrounded by water, and they have one of the smallest CCA banquets in the state. We may get 250 people at the CCA banquet over there. Um, and it just absolutely drives me nuts. And unfortunately, that's why I believe why we don't have a bigger stake. That's why they don't listen uh, to the recreational complaints and, and to what we're saying and what we want and what we believe and all of that, because it's not a big enough voice. It's not enough votes. You know, um, yeah, I don't know if you've suffered through this conversation, but I've said it hundreds of times in seminars and on the radio before you, Dave, and I know you're a hunter and an outdoorsman, just like I am. I know you have a, probably have a whole giant safe full of guns at your house, just like I do. And I always ask people, you know, that they want your guns, right? I mean, all you have to do is watch the news on any given day. They want your guns. You know why they can't have your guns? Because there's six million members of the NRA. That's why they can't have your guns. Because no politician is willing to bite off the loss of 6 million voters immediately. And they know that that's just the 6 million votes they lose of the NRA. They know there's gun owners that aren't members of the NRA. That's why they haven't taken the guns yet. Because it's too many votes to lose. Now, you're, you tell me, Dave, if we had 3 million members of CCA, you don't think our voice would be heard? I mean, I, 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 don't, think, I don't think there's any question about that. And, and uh, you know, once again, you know, that that would be a very interesting conversation to hold. And I will gladly participate in that. But, <laughs> I'd love to have you. <laughs> you know, I, I really will. Um, you know, um, it, the, the, the salt and pepper facts are that the commercial fishing industry um, has a very real dollar and cents interest in the decisions that the Gulf Councils and the National Marine Fisheries Service makes. And so they contribute financially very generously right. 
to political campaigns and to their national associations, their local associations, uh, and so forth. And we don't do that. Right. By and large. In other words, when you contribute to, C- to CCA, most of the money goes to the federal organization. The rest of the money goes to the state organization. And the local chapters are pretty much uh, funded I- internally. Right. There, you know, most the only time that I'm aware that members are rallied in CCA is to send their money to the national and the state organizations. Right. Uh, Tampa Bay Watch is phenomenal at rallying their troops for the for the local good. That would be this if I could give advice to CCA nationally and locally, it would be to Use the example of Tampa Bay Watch and show your members that you have interest in what goes on in their own backyard. And CCA has never done that. I was one of the, I mean, Richard Seward uh, actually was, you know, was, was the key as he has been in so many things, Tampa Bay Watch and other stuff to, to, and Ted, ha- and Ted Hageman really, who, you know, was one of the founders of sure. Old Fort Tunnel. Yep. But, you know, they brought Walter Fondren down to Florida. And I did not attend the initial meeting, but I attended the initial Tampa Bay meeting when Walter Fondren came here to talk. And that that was when my involvement in CCA began. And I suffered some significant loss, personal significant loss. I had a a vehicle destroyed over the Gilnet. Uh, the gillnet restriction deal uh you know i was in tallahassee for the redfish stuff i had i've had my life threatened more than once over the the conflict between certain commercial fishing interest and recreational fishing interest i also proposed a compromise that was that would have kept the lifelong commercial fishing families in business for the current generation and the upcoming generation and that was declined by the industry. But, you know, we, the, the organizations have to take responsibility when the, the, the individual members are primarily used for their money and not for their efforts. Right. And so I think there is an answer there to get to a much larger member pool. And in my opinion, that answer is involve your local members in, in, in local issues. That's just my opinion. Yeah, for sure. And I think CCA is starting to do some of that. They've done a lot of stuff here uh, with Tampa Bay Watch, as a matter of fact, with, uh, you know, uh, seabed, um, you know, rejuvenation, and then a lot of stuff with the oyster beds and all that stuff. So they're all working in a positive direction. And hopefully, uh, you know, getting the word out there will continue to grow both of those organizations. I, I think... I'd love to see CCA thriving more. I would love to see Tampa Bay Watch thriving more. Um, I just believe it's it's at the core of what we need. We need to have a bigger voice. Um, so, well, and my, my hats off to CCA and Tampa Bay Watch both as organizations, and then the fact that they're working together uh, on some major initiatives. Listen, well, we've got I've got about fifteen minutes left here, and I, before one of the things that was brought up because you and I could go off on this CCA. We could go for days on that topic alone, but one of the one of the things that was brought up when when I put it out there about you know who do you want me to do a podcast with? Send me some ideas. And when when your name was the very first one that came up, the big topic that was thrown my way was tarpon. 
A lot of people okay. know Captain Dave Marquette is one of the best tarpon fishermen on the west coast of Florida. You've been doing it, obviously, for a very, very long time. Give me some tips, Dave. Give our people some tips. I mean, how do we, you know, that's a very elusive fish. And, and I know it doesn't seem elusive to you and I, but I think for the average angler, you know, maybe hooking a tarpon, not the uh, toughest thing to do, but actually landing that fish of a lifetime. There's so much that goes into um, catching a tarpon. And, and I've been fortunate enough to fish side by side with you in Boca Grande for, I was down there for about 10 years and uh, watching you do what you do at such a high level for so long. You know, what are some of the things people can do to catch more tarpon, Dave? Well, uh, I mean, that, well, you said we had three hours to discuss this. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, it, it is the tiny details. Uh, I, I will tell you, I, I will share with the listeners that every pretty much, you can go to books, you can go to public speaking seminars, you can go to bait shops and tackle shops, and you can learn the basics. And the basics don't vary, but it's the tiniest of the details that determine success or failure. You start with knots. You know, um, there, there, there are a myriad of books written on knots. And, you know, the how many stories have I read about the new FG knot right. and how good it is and, and this, that, and the other? Well, I can tell people that with, you know, I lack three weeks of being 70 years old and my eyes are nothing like they used to be. I can see pretty good uh, way off, but as far as seeing close, I'm, I'm not real good at that. <laughs> but I can't tie an FG knot. It's just because I haven't taken time to, to, really to learn it. But I, in the dark, running 30 miles an hour, going to Boca Grande Pass, I can tie a Bimini twist that looks like it came out of a book. Mm-hmm. I can tie it with my eyes closed. And the, the key is learning a few knots that will not end your battle with the tarpon. I use the uni knot almost exclusively in the way I rig. I used to tie a Bimini twist on the bitter end of every single rig I made. The only time I tie them now is on the real light break. If you can learn to tie a uni knot to combine your main fight line with your shock leader and understand that it takes at least five wraps on your standing main line and at least three on your 100 or your 80-pound shock leader, otherwise the knot will slip and pull apart, if you can learn those knots, then you will, and by and large, you will stop breaking fish off at your knot. Most tarpon are broke off at the knot when the fish jumps and when people have got steady, you know, a, a real high rod tip on a fish jump. Because that, it, when you have a high rod tip, you eliminate your shock absorber of the fishing rod. Right. If you have a nine o'clock or three o'clock rod tip, then you've got give in the, in the tip of the rod which will keep that, that knot a lot of times from breaking. The next thing is only use light wire circle hooks. Never use a heavy wire circle hook. In my opinion, never, never use an inline circle hook. Use a slightly offset light wire circle hook. My favorite is a 7 for live bait and a 9 or a 10 for an artificial lure like a Boca Grand jig. 
The other thing is I never, ever, 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 as the country singer says, set the hook on a tarpon. I let the fish take the bait and and turn around and run the other way. And when the, the fish turns around and runs the other way, the circle hook will rotate and most of the time catch a tarpon in the corner of the mouth. Now, one little trick that I have never, ever shared in a seminar that I am going to share with Captain Mike Anderson and the podcast. God bless you, my friend. Is that if the space between the shank of your circle hook and the bent end tip will not clear the handrail on your steering wheel, it will not regularly hold the tarpon to where he won't spit it out the first time he jumps. So I take a pair of pliers and I open every hook so that the point will go over the handrail of your steering wheel. Interesting. That makes good sense. That one change, I believe, I call it tuning the hook. That one change is a great deal of the reason why I hook so many fish in the corner of the mouth or the clipper, whatever you want to call it. Now, Mm -hmm. I want to make another comment. And a lot of guys will say, I only catch tarpon in the button. (laughs) Okay, I want you to think about that for a minute. That button is so delicate and so sensitive that it is able to come up behind a swimming crab. The tarpon can open his mouth. He can grasp that crab between the button and his lower lip. He can hold on to that crab. He can suck the guts out of that crab, and he can turn the shell loose so that the top of that shell is intact. That has got to be one of the most sensitive body appendages on any wild animal in order for that giant tarpon to do that. I am not comfortable directing a hook to put as much pressure as you have to put on a mature on a mature tarpon to bring it both sides to hook that fish in the button by intent. It has never been studied what happens to a tarpon after it's buttoned up. Is that button as sensitive as it was before you pulled on it for an hour and forty five minutes? Hmm. I don't know. The corner of his mouth the corner of his mouth is one of the most heavily muscled parts of any fish. I don't believe a pinhole size hook in the clipper or the corner of the jaw itself is going to hurt that particular part of the of the tarpon's physiology because of how strongly it's muscled. Right. That's interesting. But hmm. I am not convinced that pulling on a button is the best thing for the tarpon. Now, we talk about the health of the tarpon and the resource. Ever since Ever since the Boca Grande Fishing Guides Association voted to no longer kill a fish to force the client on board to mount that fish, they were the overwhelming source of tarpon deaths in Boca Grande Pass for years and years and years. And I commend that association for volunteering to end that that deadly practice. The overwhelming number of dead tarpon now are bull shark encounters. There are a few that suffer heart attacks from prolonged fight. Just like any wild creature can have a heart attack, a tarpon can have a heart attack. And it's almost always fatal when they do. There's no, there's no resuscitative pr- uh, procedures for a tarpon. Right. <laughs> and so, uh, again, the way that, I, I, you know, I, I primarily fish for the, the largest tarpon in the world. 
those tarpon that are on the very bottom of Boca Grande Pass. And I think we do a pretty good job of catching our clients, uh, those large fish. But I use conventional tackle. I use 50-pound line. I use about 11 or 12-pound drag. And I want to catch that fish in less than 40 minutes. Usually our catch time is about 25 or 30 minutes. I know for a fact that the overwhelming majority of the fish that we catch and release swim vigorously away. You don't have to spend a long time forcing water through the gills of that tarpon to to give it a chance to survive. So I I don't have any guilt whatsoever about how we fish for tarpon in Boca Grande. And I think anybody should be able to fish the method that they choose as long as it is not clearly uh, harmful to the fish. Right. So I, I'm. You want to catch him on a on a, you, you want to catch him on a crab or on a shrimp or on a whatever a bunch of chicken feathers and a fly. I love doing that, but that's not the appropriate way to fight him in 65 feet of water. Right. You know, fly 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 rods and fly tackle is designed for shallow water where the fish jumps a lot, and and it's a spectacular thing to watch and a wonderful thing to participate in in those conditions. Well, you know, I've done that with you uh, side by side. There, uh, as a matter of fact, a lot of the tricks that were that are currently in my bag when it comes to fishing Boca Grand Pass. Uh, I learned from you uh, as you watched me struggle in my early years down there, uh, even some of my latter years. Um, so all of your tips and all that stuff, uh, I can't thank you enough for, Dave. I know that uh, you and I probably need to schedule another one of these uh, soon because there's so much knowledge uh, and I absolutely love picking your brain Truly, Dave, uh, you know, one of my very favorite people uh, in the business. Again, somebody that I've, I've really grown to respect, somebody that helped me along the way. Uh, your help uh, definitely uh, meant a great deal to me, and it, uh, I believe that it uh, is stuff that I will carry with me uh, as long as I'm blessed enough to play in this, uh, in this fishing game that the good Lord has given me. I, there's just no way for me to thank you enough. I appreciate your time today, and uh, like I said, I'd like to have you back on here soon. And uh, you know, you know so much about what's going on. You know, you don't just spend your time on the water and then walk away from all of the issues, the the political stuff, the fishing stuff, the conservation stuff. You've done so much for our fishery. I think all of uh, of us young guides or younger guides. Uh, I'm not really a young guide anymore, um, but all of the fishing guides that have followed you uh, owe you a great debt of gratitude, Dave. And uh, I really appreciate you. On behalf of all the guides, I thank you for what you've done for us, laying the groundwork for a lot of us to be able to make a living with this. Mike, I'm honored to have been asked uh, to participate, and if it's something that your listeners uh, want, I'd be honored again to, to participate in the future. Nobody better, my friend. Captain Dave Marquette, we appreciate you, brother. We'll uh, we'll see you at the boat soon, maybe even tomorrow morning. I hope so. All right, my brother. <laughs> be good. Thanks, David. My pleasure. Well, gang, that was a lot of fun. Captain Dave Marquette, always a great conversation. Again, 49 years in the guide business. Uh, So much passion, so uh, incredible. Uh, His love of the sport, his love of the fishery, conservation, all the things that uh, he stands for. I'm just a big fan of Captain Dave Marquette. Hope you enjoyed that podcast as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Remember the Real Animals podcast available on apple podcast stitcher tune in google play and ri 
tampabay.com. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, if you have any ideas, any thoughts on people you'd like to have us do podcasts with, please reach out to us. You can reach out to us on our social media sites, uh, on Facebook at Facebook slash Real Animals, on Instagram at Real Animals TV, and on Twitter at Real Animals Fish, Real Animals Podcast, presented by Contender Boats. Have a great day, everybody. This is a cannabis podcast. Quick fix on radio influence. You know, Florida is about as active in any as any other state right now uh, because there's things are moving. And the court just ruled that Florida medical marijuana regulations are unconstitutional. So everybody knows that Big Farm has dished out a lot of money and it's still resisting marijuana. Everybody knows that's still happening. So the courts rule that uh, the regulations are unconstitutional. So look for um, more advancements. Uh, John Morgan is obviously uh, one big name that you've heard in the news as far as a yeah, proponent and getting things pushed forward in legislation and, um, you know, in the government. And uh, he's after them again, and he wants to vote to make recreational marijuana legal in Florida next year. So John Morgan's on it. Uh, John Morgan, uh, Joe Redner, obviously, and there's a couple other names of people uh, out there pushing. Um, you know, you, you got to have some big names, and there's no bigger name than John Morgan. That's a big ass name. And if you don't think it's big, you look it up. You know, from what I hear, his his lawyer firm is as, as big as it gets in the country. So that's a pretty relevant, strong dude. The Cannabis Podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.